Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, Ezra chapter 8 continued. We took some time last week to kind of back away and, and get a broad perspective of the book of Ezra that spans from chapters 1 through 7. And we're doing that before beginning this home stretch now of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, our purpose isn't merely to know the history of the times. It is also to drink in the deep spiritual understanding and God principles that are there for the seeing if we'll open ourselves to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. The divine theme that we focused on last time was that God's grace is brought about on this earth, in this present age, by means of a cooperative venture with human beings. This is best illustrated in our Messiah's composition as being both human and deity. And so it's not such a difficult concept to embrace as theory. However, it becomes much more challenging to put it into practice. Because doing so leaves behind any reliance upon navigating our way through our lives based solely on passive prayer and then just waiting. And here especially, starting at chapter 8 in Ezra, we see this principle front and center. But there was also an accompanying principle that we discussed that is not so easy to accept, let alone to act upon. It is that as human beings, we're the ones who have formulated all sorts of man-made doctrines and traditions over the centuries which have twisted and at times replaced God's laws and commandments and thus we are also the ones charged with making the reforms. And indeed the story of Ezra is the story of a man who was moved by the Spirit of God to become a Torah scholar not for the purpose of mere knowledge but to lead a reform movement. Ezra learned and he believed God's word, he personally lived God's word, and he observed that the religious beliefs and practices of his fellow Jews in both the Persian diaspora and in the operation of God's temple in Jerusalem were falling dreadfully short. And if we look carefully at the Bible, we find that the so-called bumper sticker theology of watered-down, casual, 21st century Christianity is not a new phenomenon. Rather, we find at the end of the book of Daniel, all throughout the book of Esther, and at the root of the reason for Ezra's journey to Judah was a widespread ignorance of the Torah. And this led to a watered-down, casual, early 5th century B.C. Judaism. 
This somewhat deliberate ignorance of the Torah began at the top with the Levitical priesthood. And if the priests didn't know the Torah, they couldn't teach it to the people. And if the priests didn't constantly remind the people of the importance of the Torah, why would the people care about it? Thus, Jewish cultural traditions and customs arose that substituted for true biblical worship and observances. And after a few years, these customs became the unchallenged norm. For anyone to seriously delve into that matter, oh man, that was going to open a Pandora's box of trouble. A lot of upset. Because it would challenge the accepted teachings of the embedded religious establishment. When Christ tried to pry open this same box to expose all of its error and falsehood and carnality not quite five centuries later he was met with some pretty stiff resistance from almost every Jewish religious faction because each established group had too much skin in the game to simply allow their authority and status and credibility to be overthrown by some uneducated blue-collar craftsman from the Galilee, the threat that Yeshua posed to the religious establishment became so serious in their eyes that false charges were trumped up against him by the high priest and by the Sanhedrin and he was essentially murdered under the premise of justice and of protection for the souls of the Jewish people thus the journey that we're going to find Ezra undertaking in order to impose his Torah based reforms upon the highest ranking Jewish religious authority from the high priest himself on down well it wasn't going to be appreciated no doubt Ezra expected this he understood that reform is inherently a very public indictment against the the, the leaders of the current institution and thus it's going to be fought against sometimes violently by those that are certainly not willing to have their authority challenged. Therefore, he wisely enlisted the official backing of King Artaxerxes. And the king gave Ezra the power to name his own team of judges, officials, priests, and Levites. So let's make this personal for a second. For all of you who would call yourselves Messianics or Hebrew Roots Christians, and by God's grace, the scales have fallen off of your eyes, and you have come to see the need to accept all of God's Word in our faith, not just the parts of it that uphold certain agenda-driven doctrines, 
and you grasp that irreplaceable value of the Torah of God as the foundation of that faith, if it's not clear to you yet, please realize that the reason for all this pushback from the established Judeo-Christian religious institutions that all of us are experiencing is because whether we thought of ourselves in such a way or not, we're viewed by that leadership as unwelcomed reformers. And so, adversaries. And the decision we're all going to face, hear me, because this is a promise, the decision we're all going to face sooner or later, just as Ezra and all his followers did, is whether it is better to continue the good fight in all of its messiness, in all of its uncertainties, and let the chips fall where they may, or to capitulate to the traditional institutional norms and then revert to the practices and beliefs that most of us came from. If you haven't been faced with that yet, you will be very soon. So let's open back up our Bibles and take up Ezra's journey. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1127. Now we're going to actually begin just a sentence before that at the end of chapter 7. You'll see why in a minute. So starting at the last sentence of what in most Bibles is Ezra chapter 7. So I took courage... Since the hand of Adonai my God was on me and I gathered together out of Israel key men to go up with me. These are the heads of their father's clans. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babel Babel, during the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the descendants of Pincus, Gershom. Of the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the descendants of David, Hattush. Of the descendants of Shekaniah, of the descendants of Parosh, Zechariah, and with him 150 males officially registered. Of the descendants of Pachat Moav, Elihoyene, the son of Zerachiah, and with him 200 males. Of the descendants of Shekaniah, the son of Zachaziel, and with him 300 males. <coughs> of the descendants of Adin, Eved, the son of Yonatan, and with him 50 males. Of the descendants of Elam, Yeshayah, the son of Atalia, and with him 70 males. Of the descendants of Sheftiah, Zavadiah, the son of Mikael, and with him 80 males. Of the descendants of Yoav, Ovadiah, the son of Yechiel, and with him 218 males. Of the descendants of Shlomit, the son of Yosfiah, and with him 160 males. Of the descendants of Bevai, Zechariah, the son of Bevai, and with him 28 males. Of the descendants of Azgad, Yochnan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males. Of the descendants of Adinakam, the younger ones, whose names were Eliphelet, 
Yael and Shmaiah, and with him 60 males, and of the descendants of Bigvai, Utai and Zakur, and with them 70 males. We'll stop right there. Now, I started at the end of what most Bibles labels chapter 7, verse 28, because that verse, when I read it to you, you see it belongs, really, is the opening verse of, of chapter 8. They just didn't do the greatest job of picking a good place to stop one chapter and start the next. Now, we get a long list of folks who were recruited and volunteered to go with Ezra back to Judah. Now notice how the words of the passage have Ezra describing these folks as the key men of Israel. Now I'm going to bring this issue up to you occasionally as it seems appropriate to instill this important understanding. It plays such a role in our time. That a tradition arose up in Babylon, then Persia, that those Jewish survivors from the exile of Judah to Babylon ought to be counted as the surviving remnant of all Israel. And all Israel means all 12 tribes. This tradition is as much historical fantasy as it is error. The Jews of Babylon who returned to Judah represented mostly one tribe, Judah, and along with another tribe, Benjamin, that had by now mostly assimilated into it. However, the other ten tribes are the ones that history dubs the ten lost tribes of Israel. Those are the ten tribes who resided outside of the kingdom of Judah, up to the north in the promised land, who some 130 years prior to the Jews being exiled from Judah had themselves been deported from their ten tribal districts and scattered all over the Asian continent and into North Africa by the Assyrians. Now, was there some insignificant number of members of those ten tribes who had somehow joined up with Judah and or Benjamin and perhaps ventured back to Judah with some of the Jewish returnees? Yes, it's possible and probably likely. But that's not at all a true rejoining of the twelve tribes any more than does a few grains of sand make a beach. Nor does a handful of folks from the ten tribes joining up with Judah somehow endow the tribe of Judah with the authorization to hold itself up as the representative and remnant of all the tribes of Israel. And although we're not going to go into, the, go into it right now, Ezekiel 37 carefully explains when and under what circumstances that the ten tribes will finally return to the promised land and rejoin their brothers from Judah. And it will not be until the latter days and until after Israel was reborn as a sovereign Jewish state. It's very clear in Ezra 37 how this is going to go down. And so the rejoining of the tribes as envisioned by Ezekiel, but that Judah incorrectly deemed 
to have happened already as they returned from Babylon is actually occurring today in our time. Bottom line, what we see written in Ezra and some later Bible books that assumes this new claim of Judaism as representing all Israel is correctly recorded in the Bible because that's just how they believed it. It's only that this belief is an agenda-driven tradition born up in Babylon. It's not historical reality. It doesn't even fit the prophecies. Even so, Ezra seems to have embraced this tradition. So he made copious use of the number 12 as symbolism in order to establish it as irrefutable belief that Judah now consisted of all 12 Israelite tribes. Notice in the first 14 verses that we just read of chapter 8 that we're going to find a total of 15 family groups listed. And notice that the first two groups are priests. The third group is Jewish royalty. And then the next 12 groups are common Jewish families. Now I've done my own research and I've found numerous claims by Bible teachers that the names represented by each of these 12 families of common Jews can be identified to a specific Israelite tribe. In other words, it's attempting to justify the use of the number 12. However, there's no reasonable evidence of this. It's just a guess. If anything, these names are found as common family names from the tribe of Judah. But by no means are these names indicative of historical family names of the ten lost tribes. There is no legitimate discernible connection between this list of names and the ten lost tribes of Israel. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. Because in chapter 7, Israel's personal genealogy was taken all the way back to Aaron. Then uh, then in this like kind that we find in chapter 8, this highly abbreviated family genealogy of the two priestly families who signed up to return with Ezra were also designed to show their connection going back to Aaron. Pinchas, written in some English versions as Phineas, is the son of Eleazar, who is the son of Aaron. Thus, Pinchas is in the high priestly line. Now note that in our abbreviated genealogy, that we read in verse 2, it jumps, the genealogy jumps, all the way from Pinchas, which is Aaron's grandson, all the way to Gershom. And Gershom is the current head of the priestly family that's teaming up with Ezra. So well over a couple of dozen generations are just skipped over in this genealogy. 
Then the next priestly family line that's presented, still in verse 2, is of the regular priests. In other words, they're not qualified to be the high priests. This genealogy traces their line back as far as Ithamar, who was a son of Aaron. And the currently living head of that family is a fellow named Daniel. Daniel. And once again, more than a couple of dozen generations are simply skipped over between Daniel and Ithamar. Why? Why are they skipped over? We discussed this issue of biblical genealogy before, but very quickly. It is rare in the Bible that genealogies are complete and without gaps. That's because that was never the intention. In fact, the same genealogy found for the same person in two or more separate listings in the Bible can be somewhat different. And that is because in the Bible, all genealogical listings are purpose-driven. The goal is not to present an exhaustive, precise genealogy as is commonly done in modern times. See, our modern Western goal is to correctly list every family member in precise order as far back as we possibly can but its purpose is only a general one and it is to establish a reference list of all related family members that can be used however we see fit but the goal of the genealogies of ancient people such as the Hebrews wasn't the same they didn't have the same mindset that we have about it they sought to establish some kind of a specific purpose for showing this genealogical relationship. It could be established their right to property inheritance. Or maybe that they were in an advantageous royal line. Or that they had come from an especially admired family and they simply wanted the status. The reasons are many. Here, Ezra was seeking to establish in this genealogy that the two families of priests that he recruited were legitimately representative of both classes of priests that could then be used to establish one of the family lines as the high priests, that was the family of Gershom, and the other as the family line of regular priests, the family of Daniel. Now the third group of families is interesting because the genealogy is designed to connect a fellow named Hattush with King David. This Hattush can be found in a more complete genealogy that's listed in 1 Chronicles 13. Now what's interesting is that he is part of the family of Zerubbabel the same Zerubbabel who we read about in earlier chapters that had led the first group of returnees back to Judah and who led the reconstruction efforts of the temple. But what's the point of establishing Hattush 
as part of King David's royal family? Well, it's impossible for us to know for certain. But it is possible that Ezra would try to replace the current governor of Judah with Hattush, thus having a member of King David's royal family as the head of Judah. But Hattush certainly would not have been a king. The only king allowed in the Persian Empire was the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. Now, might Ezra have in mind to identify and reestablish the royal line of David in hopes of a future day when a Jewish king might sit upon the throne of a once again sovereign Jewish nation. And by the way, history proves that never from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the year 1948 following World War II would there ever again be a sovereign Jewish nation. Or was bringing Hattush along with him just a symbolic gesture to have a genuine royal descendant of David return to Judah to sort of help refocus the Jews back to the Holy Scriptures and to the prophecies concerning King David. We, we just don't know. Well, after following the line of King David, we get what I fully believe was the symbolic use of twelve for the common Jewish for the number of common Jewish families that Ezra chose to go back with him to Judah. And we see that we get somewhat of a of a census, if you would, that tells us how many returned as family members for, for each group, each family group. And notice that the typical Hebrew method of only listing male family members is used. So that means there would have been women and children in addition. Also notice that most of the numbers used are round numbers, like 150 or 60 or 70. There's too many round numbers to believe that these are precise numbers. They are approximations. And this is common in the Bible. What's important to see is that the, about 1,500 males from the common Jewish families are listed. So the total number of those family members who were on the caravan with Ezra was probably around 5,000. No numbers are given for the two priestly families or for David's royal family, so there's no point in guessing it. Likely, however, it was a pretty small number. Let's read a little bit more of Ezra chapter 8. We'll read now from 15 through 23. Page 1127 of your complete Jewish Bible. Ezra 8, starting at 15. I assembled them by the river that runs to Ava, and we camped there three days. I reviewed the people and the Kohanim, the priests, but found no Levaim, Levites, there. So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shmiah, El Natan, Yariv, El Natan, Natan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders, and also for Yoyoriv and for El Natan, who were men of discernment. I gave them instructions for Edo, the leading man in a place called Kasfiah, and told them what to say to Edo and his, his brother who were in charge 
charge of Kasafia, uh, so that they would bring us men to minister in the house of our God. Now, since the good hand of God was on us, they brought us Ish Sekel from the descendants of Machli, the son of Levi, the son of Israel. Sherevyah with 18 of his sons and kinsmen. Hashavyah with Yeshayah from the descendants of Merari and 20 of his kinsmen and their sons. And from the temple servants whom David and the princes had assigned to serve the Levites, 200 temple servants, all recorded by name. Then there at the Ahava, Ahava River, I proclaimed a fast so that we could humble ourselves before our God and ask for a safe journey of Him for ourselves, our little ones, and all of our possessions. For I would have been ashamed to ask the king for a detachment of soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies along the road, since we had said to the king, the hand of our God is on all who seek Him for good. But His power and fury is against all who abandon Him. So we fasted and we asked our God for this and he answered our prayer. Back in chapter 7, there was a brief mention of Ezra's journey to Jerusalem beginning at the city of Babel and giving the departure date as the first day of the first month in the seventh year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. But here we receive now more data. First, it seems, Ezra traveled from Babel to a place called the Ava, Ahava, for you cosmetics lovers. The Ava River. And this place is completely unknown, however very likely... It was just one of several man-made canals all along the Euphrates River. For whatever reason, this place became the chosen rallying point for all the families to assemble. Well, that they camped there for three days makes perfect sense. There was no bus schedule in that era. So three days of leeway were built in which at the same time gave Ezra a chance to review the troops, so to speak, to meet some of the leaders that he hadn't met up to this point, and to size up their preparations. Now he instantly discovered that no Levites were to be found. Now it's much easier to understand the Bible, to retain what happened, and to apply its principles when we can relate to the people who form its cast of characters. So we need to ask ourselves a very simple question. From an overall perspective, what would have been the attraction for these exiles to volunteer to return to Judah? Why would they want to go? Those who had great religious zealousness or thought they needed to reclaim hereditary family land back in Judah would have gone years earlier. All the people encamped with Ezra at the Ava River were established residents of various Persian cities. All had some type of ongoing business or tradecraft. 
They were living in comfortable homes. Theirs was an enlightened society with a functioning government and they had established families. What would have been their incentive to want to move? Even the trip to Judah was going to be long and dangerous. It is highly unlikely that any of them had ever been there before. They didn't know what they were going to face. They would be like pioneers in a wagon train, hoping for the best, but not knowing for sure what they would face when they arrived. And while their motives aren't addressed, I think the way the narrative is written makes it self-evident. This group was headed up by the religious reformer Ezra. This move was all about going to where God said they belonged. Both from a sense of the place they should live in and also how they should live in relationship with Him. Notice that Ezra's group consisted of a supreme leader who was a Torah expert, Ezra, and of priests, and twelve families of lay people who represented the twelve tribes of the wilderness journey. Their mindset had to be as it was with the Israelites as they left Egypt. This was their God-led exodus to the land promised to Abraham. And because this is framed, at least that's how I see it, as the second exodus, Ezra's group had to be constructed to the same standards that God gave to Moses for his group that came out of Egypt. Ezra had assembled the high priest family, the regular priest family, and the number of families needed to represent the twelve tribes, but they were missing one key piece. They had no Levites. And I have little doubt that this group of about 5,000 souls sensed, as did Ezra, that something had gone wrong with their relationship with the Lord during their time away from His kingdom land. And the great Torah teacher Ezra must have pointed out to these family leaders in God's Word that what they sensed was indeed a holy calling. Even if they didn't know exactly what to do about it. The lack of any Levites was a showstopper until it was remedied. So Ezra assigned a group of 11 men to seek out a fellow named Ido at a place called Kasfia. Now there's lots of unanswered questions about who Ido is and what Kasfia is. While consensus is never proof, nonetheless, most Jewish and Christian scholars think that Kasafia must be a place where some kind of a sanctuary or a worship center existed. And thus it was known that Levites resided there. Some academics are very bothered by this repetition of names 
that are listed in this contingent of men who were sent to Kasafiyah. El-Natan is used three times. Yariv used two times. Our complete Jewish Bibles kind of muddle the use the two uses of the name Yariv because the second time it calls him Yo-Yariv. But in fact, the Hebrew spelling of the two is identical. So because of this repetition, some critical scholars say that this list must be corrupted. I I don't think so. These were common names for that time. And notice that none of them included the Ben, son of, such and such designation that would help make distinction between them. These ancient folks were similar to us in that large families tended to reuse favored names. I mean, we we often add senior, junior, the third or the fourth to a series of common family names that are passed down generation to generation. Goodness, you can show up at my family gathering and say Tom or Matt and you'll have 20 voices answer you. (laughs) Ezra told the eleven to go as a delegation to Kasafiyah and to approach Ido, who was probably in charge of the religious activity that went on at this religious center, like the head of a commune. Well, Ido agreed to their request and apparently convinced a number of young Levite men to become part of the group going back to Judah, no doubt appealing to their spiritual sensitivities. We find that 38 Levites responded to the call, as well as 220 temple servants who are called Nethanim in Hebrew. Now, I realize the complete Jewish Bible says 200. I think it's just a misprint, literally a misprint. The Hebrew spells out 220, and most other Bible versions say the same thing. Anyway, just as Levites were essentially servants to the priests, so were the Nethanim servants to the Levites. And while the Torah specifies the Levites, indeed, as servants to the priests, no servants are ordained for the Levites. And interestingly, we're told that this practice of supplying the Levites with their own kind of servants began with King David. And it had been carried on as a tradition ever since that a larger number of Nethanim were willing to go, 220 Nethanim, 38 Levites, says that their lives probably weren't nearly as comfortable as the Levites they were serving. Now once again, we see a brief statement of genealogy that identifies two legitimate Levite families, that of Machli and the other of Merari. Apparently, even the Nethanim, the lowly temple workers, had written proof that they were descended from the families first assigned by King David for that task. But because there were so many of them, and they were at the bottom of the temple servants' worker scale, the writer of the book of Ezra apparently didn't see fit to notate their names or genealogy, but they, he did tell us that their names were officially recorded. So now that Ezra had a sufficient number of Levites to complete his Exodus lookalike marching formation, he was ready to go. But wisely, 
the matter was put before the Lord in prayer and supplication. A fast was proclaimed, we're told, to humble ourselves before God, to ask for a safe journey. Now I want to remind you of how different Ezra's act was than what was recorded of Esther telling the Jews of Susa to fast. It's important that we should pay close attention to the contrast between these two. Recall what the verse recorded about Esther and her fast in Esther 4.16. It is said, Go and assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan, or Susa, and have them fast for me neither eating nor drinking for three days, night and day. Also I and the girls attending me will fast the same way. Then I'll go to the king which is against the law and if I perish, I perish. No mention of prayer. No mention of going before the Lord. This is as opposed to Ezra wanting to fast specifically to humble ourselves before God. Our eyes and our minds tend to read in or assume that Esther's fast included prayer to God. But neither prayer nor God is mentioned. And considering the context of the entire book of Esther and of what we know of Ezra's time from other Bible books and records, and what Ezra observed of his fellow Jews and his response to all this to devote himself to learning the Torah and then taking what he learned as a platform to reform the religion of the Jews I think we should not assume that any prayer at all was meant to be included in Esther's fast I think for Esther and the Jews of Susa fasting in and of itself was considered something admirable and worthwhile much like meditation is today or perhaps as that moment of silence that is called for at a gathering when honoring someone important who has died or commemorating a sober event that has touched us as a community but we don't want to get all religious about it But Ezra, as a devout man of God, he determined to restore biblical-based worship and observances of God's commandments. He had his team fast before the Lord for the express purpose of beseeching God for his favor of protection for their journey. And Ezra had a very good reason for asking for this particular request. The route he was going to take was close to 1,000 miles long. It was treacherous. Bandits marauded. Egypt was in full rebellion and attacking in the southern areas of the Persian Empire, right where he'd be traveling. And Ezra's caravan was loaded down with a tantalizing king's treasure of gold and silver. We'll finish up Ezra chapter 8 and get into Ezra 9 next time.